Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. It's our part two to Francis's part two with the 1974 film, The Godfather Part Two. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had to try to forgive Fredo... You're sweet and helpless and ready for the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And with that, let's check in with games master Stephen Smart, currently out on a boat in Lake Tahoe saying his Hail Marys in the hopes of catching a fish so we can find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was Just Friends from 2005, starring Ryan Reynolds, Amy Smart and Anna Faris. Congrats to AQS Morning View who guessed it on image one. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. And we got a blot spot uh, from the show. Ben Lott wrote in with his reaction to The Godfather. This this blot spot really made me happy, Pete. As it should. I don't usually connect well with gangster movies because I can't find any good people to care about. And that was my experience the first time I watched The Godfather. Well, on my second watch, I find it has aged like a fine wine. I loved it and was invested in every minute. The music, the directing, the acting, it's all brilliant. I wonder if it will continue to race up my chart each time I watch it. Now I went from not interested in watching part two to anxious. Your rank one, my rank 17. Mm, I like every word of that. Me too. Fine wine. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we like to hear. Absolutely. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I'm pretty excited about mine. Um, it's it's called The Belko Experiment. And it looks like a crazy little movie. Now, uh, for those of you who've been tuning into our Speakeasy episodes, uh, when we had Abraham Ben Ruby on the show, you might remember that he mentioned this was something that he had been working on. Uh, this is directed by Greg McLean. I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's McLean or if it's McLean. Not after I have a this movie. It's the latter. <laughs> but uh, Greg is uh, a writer, a director, writer, producer. He did Wolf Creek. Which is a uh, a gruesome little movie. I don't know if you ever watched that one. But, what do you uh, What do you think? What do you think? I I I pretty much know you never saw that one. <laughs> oh man, or Rogue, or Wolf Creek Two, or the TV miniseries Wolf Creek, or you know he's doing Wolf Creek Three. I guess he really is really is uh, enjoying that series, which is a <laughs> I've only seen the first one, but oof, it was a it was a brutal movie. Uh, but this one is uh, it's the basic uh, the IMDb uh, plot summary is in a twisted social experiment, 80 Americans are locked in their high rise corporate office in Bogota, Colombia, and ordered by an unknown voice coming from the company's intercom system to participate in a deadly game of kill or be killed. That pretty much is what I saw. It's pretty much what it is. And it's it's bloody. You've got uh, people's heads blowing up and people kind of, you know, it, it kind of turns into that situation where it's like if you're not going to, you know, turn and kill somebody, you might either get your head blown up or have somebody kill you and everybody starts getting a little crazy and violent. The thing that really intrigues me about this uh, is that James Gunn 
our old friend from Guardians of the Galaxy, he's actually writing this one. And uh, that thrills me to no end. So I'm really curious about how this is going to be and uh, just to see exactly what happens here. But uh, it's got a great cast, Sean Gunn, Michael Rooker, uh, John C. McGinley, Tony Goldwyn, Abraham Ben Ruby, I already mentioned, uh, Adria Arjona. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think this looks like a really interesting uh, take on the kind of the horror film and the social experiments film. So uh, I'm quite excited. Uh, what do you think of this one? Oh, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, let me say this. I think that Sean Gunn is really funny. I like him <laughs> as an actor. How's that? That's a start. <laughs> Michael awesome. Rooker. I like him, too. John C. McGinley, <laughs> big fan of him on Scrubs. Of course, John Gallagher Jr., big fan of John Gallagher Jr. He was on uh, on uh, Newsroom, uh, the hit uh, Aaron Sorkin canceled That's show. Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot to like about this movie. I'm not sure I'm in t- I'm crazy about them uh, about them blowing each other up as much as as that, but uh this looks like um a a clever twist uh on an age-old locked room murder horror story. I love the idea of the building. I love the name, the clever name off of Belco. I love the whole uh, idea of making a psychological experiment, uh, a, a murder show. And I, I don't know if I'm going to see it. I'm going to say it's it's out there. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to see this. Uh, I guarantee you I won't see it in the theaters. I guarantee that. <laughs> uh, but I, there is a chance. There's a, a non-zero chance, Andy, that I will see this movie. You you do have a little bit of a, a horror tendencies hiding away in there. We all I'm, know this. Pete. I'm coming to terms with it, <laughs> with my trailer right. tonight as well. So I'm 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 sort of looking forward to this film. So please, when Excellent. does it hit? Well, it's going to be opening March 17th uh, next year. So uh, very much looking forward to it, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you more about it then. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll be a delight. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, my trailer, Andy is also uh, a bit of a gruesome story. Yes, it is. I was actually torn, and you were you were bullying me to do Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I'm just going to say as a plug, go watch that trailer. It's hysterical. It's funny every time I watch it. It's fantastic. Go see it. Uh, but the trailer I am doing tonight is The Autopsy of Jane Doe. This is from director Andre Irvdahl. Now, you will know Andre Irvdahl. Oh, yes, Pete. Yes, you will, because he is the director behind Troll Hunter, a show we did uh, uh, some some time ago. What a fun little movie! That was a great movie, and that was a was that that was a listener's choice, wasn't it? Nope, no, no, that, that was, was just part us. Of a, we chose that. That was part of our uh, uh, found footage film. Oh, that's series. right. That's what it was. That was a great show and a really fun movie. And uh, I even liked that. So when I saw that Andre was behind this film, uh, it stars Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch. And they play, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say it, father and son coroners. I love that. They get a homicide victim uh, with no apparent cause of death. And as they start unraveling the cause of death during their investigation, during the autopsy, uh, they uncover a a mystery. Uh, And it looks like it's a bit of the uh, supernatural is involved, a bit of the uh, occult, perhaps. I don't know. Hints uh, abound. Uh, But I am 
I'm looking forward to this movie. It's very strange. Written by Ian Goldberg and Richard Nang. Uh, Ian Goldberg uh, is uh, behind, he is a producer of Once Upon a Time, which is not a horror program, if you have watched it. Uh, it he is also producer of Dead of Summer, which I've never heard, but it has Dead in it. And the poster uh, actually is a tire swing with only legs sticking out of it, no torso. <laughs> so I have to imagine it. <laughs> It has sort of a similar vibe uh, to uh, this one. And and um, uh, Richard Nang is the writer behind, uh, he, he had written part of the series of Dead of Summer. So that's how uh, the two of them came together. He's a producer of, of uh, a few other films and Better Living Through Chemistry, uh, etc. So looks like an interesting uh, feature um, uh, Emil Hirsch, I'm a fan of Emil Hirsch, Brian Cox, obviously we love Brian Cox, uh, and so I, I think there's a lot to look forward to in this movie. I find it strange that I'm, I'm coming out as a potential horror, uh, enthusiast. I think it's funny because mine is rated R for strong bloody violence throughout language, including sexual references and some drug use. And yours is rated R for bloody horror violence, unsettling grisly <laughs> images, graphic nudity, and language. <laughs> mine has mine has <laughs> bloody violence throughout, but yours has has yours actually sounds like the scarier movie. Mine sounds like a bloody thriller, and yours sounds like the horror. And it's like it, it sounds like it's completely backward. <laughs> I love it. I I think it looks really interesting, and I love this whole idea of this father son corner team trying to solve this mystery. <laughs> That's the and thing that locks me in too. Oh, it's so funny, but it just looks really creepy and really intriguing. So um, I, I really enjoyed the imagery in the trailer, uh, particularly creepy after the lights all explode and go out and they're in the basement of their their lab and they look around with the flashlight and all of the little uh, slab, the doors to the different slabs are all open and empty. <laughs> that is so creepy. Oh, it's creepy. <laughs> Oh, and dad is nowhere to be found, right? Dad yeah, is gone. Yeah. Oh, it's creepy. Well, this is already out on the festival circuit. It hit Fantastic Fest and London Film Festival. Toronto, it opened September 9th uh, through October. Chicago, Philadelphia, Monsters of Film in Stockholm. Uh, it doesn't hit uh, the U.S. Well, it actually very, very soon, December 21st. Limited release uh, in uh, December 21st of this year. I am sure a wider release after the new year. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says, like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Don Vito Corleone and his son Michael both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Both had killed as an act of vengeance. Both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world. Is it true that in the year 1950, you devised the murder of the heads of the so-called five families in New York? It's a complete falsehood. They would take any measures. When you've won, you want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. It's just my enemies. Make any arrangement. Michael? We're bigger than U.S. Steel. Order any death. To protect the empire they controlled. The Godfather and his heir. Both were men of ice and both were targets. The Godfather Part 2, Andrew. 
1974. Uh, this continues the story of Michael Corleone and his rise to power as leader of the largest crime family in New York and Nevada. And uh, it takes place uh, in two periods. And that way we shoehorn Robert De Niro in the movie, too, which is exciting. Uh, obviously directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Coppola and Mario Puzzo again. And uh, stars Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, John Cazale, Talia Shire, Lee Strasberg, and others. How did this movie hit you on the heels of our experience with our new number one film in three and a half years on our flick chart list, The Godfather, last week? This is a really, just a really strong film. It's really powerful. It's really dark. It's uh, it's very... Um, I want to say convoluted, but I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> it, yeah. But it's very, uh, the story, there's there's a lot going on in the story, particularly the present day story that, or present day as in uh, uh, Al Pacino's story, which is really 1958, 59. Um, that story has just a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of elements that are being woven through as far as Michael and, and his machinations. It's a, it's a very Machiavellian story as far as what he's doing and, and kind of working to uh, deal with this attempted assassination that happens toward the beginning of the film. I really love all of that. I think it's just done so well and it's so intriguing. And I don't watch it often enough to actually remember all of the different points. So it ends up feeling very fresh every time I watch it, which I think is probably a good thing. And then there's the whole side with uh, with uh, Robert De Niro as young Vito uh, as he's growing up. And, uh, and you get to see him kind of coming into power as a godfather and doing it really to bring his family together. And I think... What I find so powerful about the strength of this film is watching um, these two different um, Corleones as they're uh, as as they're kind of rising to power, as they're strengthening their position, and how different that experience is for each of them, and and really kind of what uh, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. I I find it absolutely fascinating, and uh, and I uh, I really love it. I love watching this movie. You know, I think I, I agree with everything you just said, and I still, it, it doesn't connect for me as well, certainly as well as Godfather 1 did. And I, I think there are a couple of reasons for that that I hope we will sort of peel apart over this conversation. What I love about this film, first of all, it is built on such a profoundly fantastic foundation, right? This The story of this family, I am deeply interested in the story of this family. I'm deeply interested in the bifurcation of periods here, that we get to see the two father stories, right, as they progress through time, kind of in parallel. I really like all of that. I love how it was shot. I love the color. I love the overall experience of the, the age of the look of the film. I think it's really powerful. I love, love, love the way this film opens up the mechanics of crime and politics. The first film is a very, very much of an inward-looking film, right? It's very much how, uh, you know, how the family relates to itself and how the families relate to each other 
but you don't see as much of the mechanics of how the families relate to the world around them, right? You get a little bit of that when they go down to Hollywood, but you don't get as as much, or Nevada, they go to Las Vegas, you don't get as much of that uh, in the first film, as certainly as you do here. And here, it bleeds into politics, which I think is a uh, a wonderful journey that we get to go on uh, with with Michael and the senator and their the the way that crime and mob families interact with each other, negotiate with one another. I think it's a, a fantastic experience. And yet, I still, I, I find it's harder to watch. Even, I mean, it's a, a significantly longer film. Well, maybe not significantly. What is it, a half hour longer? Yeah, another uh, half than hour. The first one. It's another half hour than the first movie. Uh, and it feels much longer than that. Uh, to me, it it took multiple settings. It it wasn't the kind of film that I could just sit down and get engrossed in over the course of it. My hunch is that's because of the time split, and and obviously they include an intermission in this film. All of that breaks up my experience such that I I found myself wishing, I, I kind of wish there was a Godfather four, and that they had taken this and split it in two. So uh, overall, a strong experience. This is for me not in contention for number one. I'm not one of those people who have ever really kind of put number two over number one, but there are certainly the supporters for this film that rank it higher than the first film. And I think that's because of the the really interesting structure that Coppola chose to do here and the way that he chose to not just tell a, a pulpy, you know, godfather story, you know, this kind of story of this family and this crime and all this sort of stuff and how this this good son ends up kind of turning, um, but really taking a, a little more artsy approach to it. And you have, like I said, all of the 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 uh, the uh, machinations that that son is now uh, doing in his timeline, but then you also have that comparing and contrasting with the father. And that was something Coppola really wanted to explore actually long before he uh, ended up making this film he just had this whole idea of following a father and son at the same age and and seeing how their lives kind of took took different paths um and i think that's just something that kind of uh stemmed from you know his curiosity to to tell stories in interesting ways and um, certainly, I mean, he's he's always been one of those directors who's always tried to kind of do one for him and then one for the studio and one for him and one for the studio. And certainly right between these two, he, um, you know, he was hired to write The Great Gatsby. And then he also directed The Conversation, which is um, a really great film in its own right. And um, and, and I think. I think that's something that a lot of people have latched onto with this film is that really interesting construction and looking at these lives and how different they are and everything. And I certainly appreciate it. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy the two stories. Um, but yeah, kind of like you, I, I've always enjoyed the first Godfather more than I've enjoyed this one. It's kind of exhausting. How many times did you have to sit down and watch it to get through it this week? Well, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a fair comparison because I, I wasn't able to watch the original uh, Godfather in one sitting. So neither of them have been finished in one sitting. I, I did make it through the first one, and that's why I'm a little bit biased. But this one, this one, I, I fell asleep uh, a, a couple of times. Um, so over two nights, I, I, I don't know how much time I blacked out. Uh, and the next morning I watched it, I realized, goodness, this is essentially half a day. To get, to get through this movie, it's essentially effectively half a day once you throw in some bathroom breaks and snacks. Uh, and so it's a it, it's a tough watch uh, for me in that regard. And I think it I find the length and I'm, you know, 
I just find the length a bit of, of a deterrent. And so I'm left asking this question. Uh, and, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm curious your perspective. Would it have been a, a, a better release to, to do this chronologically? You think it was, do you think the benefit of having the two stories running in parallel as an experiment of Coppola's adds enough value to the viewing experience for you? You know what's funny is my first viewing of this was actually the uh, chronological version of all three films. Oh, that's kind of a cheat for the first time. I know. Up until that point, I had only seen The Godfather. And then I, uh, yeah, then I ended up watching the, the Godfather saga, which took all three films, added a whole bunch of deleted scenes and all that sort of stuff. And it was just this one sprawling, like nearly 10 hour movie is basically how it worked. And um, so I, I don't know. I went into this story knowing it chronologically before I ever actually saw the film the way that he originally released it. So I definitely enjoy the the chronological version. It feels very novelish. You know, you kind of are just going from this story, then you go to this story, and then you go to this story, and it just kind of moves you through it. Having subsequently seen uh, Godfather 2 as he originally released it, I have found that I definitely prefer the intercut version. I find it difficult, and, and I ultimately I agree with you, right? I mean, of course, we would need some more material for the earlier film if we were to try and split it, and that, that sort of armchair editorializing is is what it is. But I, I did find I was more interested in the earlier story, right? I was much more engaged with Vito, young Vito's story, uh, and and his the the sort of early thug days and what the 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 specific turning points these butterflies that flap their wings that allow him to go from being an innocent Sicilian kid to a, a you know a mob kingpin right those elements I thought were really strong in this movie and they were the same things that I latched onto in the first film that I think were so strong this one. Um, I am. Uh, I, I find myself more um, distracted by the mechanics of the politics. I think they were. It was. It was less elegant than any single element in the first movie. It's so tricky for me because I actually used to um, pull the uh, the second Congress scene um, when when you have uh, uh, Frankie Pentangeli. Uh, yep. doing his uh, testimony and uh, his subsequent conversation with Tom, I would play those two scenes in my screenwriting class um, and when we would talk about subtext. It's a great example. Great example. The the way the screenplay is structured and just, I mean, just the, you know, all those examples of subtext, really not just there, but I mean, throughout the whole film, I just find it so powerful and interesting that I'm constantly interested in this film um, so, uh, but you know, I, but I, I get it. I see where you're coming from. It, I mean, it's long. And the interesting thing about those, um, those particular scenes is they're not ever really set up, you know, and that's something that I, I can understand why it would all of a sudden seem like a little bit of a roadblock is because, you know, you're watching the film and then you come back from a flashback watching Vito in the past. And next thing you know, you're sitting in this, this big, uh, hearing, as uh, he, as you know, these 
these uh, people are testifying before this Senate hearing. And it can be a little off-putting because it's like, how did all this happen? And there's no real setup for it. And so to that end, I definitely understand. Yeah, there is, that is true. Although on the on the other hand, I actually find it uh, it's appealing because I get the, the – my sense is that Coppola and Puzo in particular are putting a lot of faith in the viewer. And – I think that's, you know, they don't hold my hand at all in this movie, right? And as many times as I've seen it, which is not as many as I've seen The Godfather, uh, the original film, um, I, I really appreciate that they uh, they allow me to explore as an audience member what's going on and to just trust that I'll keep up. There's an element that I, I definitely want to bring up about um, uh, this whole idea of Clemenza and how Coppola, you know, we had, we talked about last week how, yeah. you know, he had been talking uh, to Richard uh, Castellano about coming back as Clemenza and Castellano wanted to have approval to have, you know, somebody that, you know, by his approval to rewrite his lines or write all of his part for him, or he would write it, something like that. And Coppola is just like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. That's not how it works. And so, and this argument went on all the way up until they were practically ready to shoot and he couldn't get this deal together with, with uh, Castellano. And so finally Coppola is just like, oh, forget it. It's not going to work. And so he just wrote Clemenza dead. And then he added all, he basically gave the whole part of Clemenza over to this other character, Frankie Patangeli, um, which kind of became his replacement. And they had this, you know, brief moment where they talk about how Clemenza had died right there at the very beginning uh, at the party. I think that it's a, it's a really interesting change. I don't know if it really affects the story too much, but I do find it really interesting knowing that, you know, we see basically the formation of the partnership between uh, Vito Corleone and a young Clemenza, uh, played by Bruno Kirby. And I think that's, it's so great. You see this partnership form and even Tessio and kind of all of this stuff as they, as they kind of kick off this whole um, beginning of their crime, of the crime family, of the Corleone crime family. And then knowing that it could have been Clemenza in Pentangeli's part all the way through the end and going through almost testifying before, uh, before the Senate and then his brother showing up and he, he backs out and then he k- kills himself. How interesting would that have been if it was really kind of like this, this, this saga of this, of this relationship between Clemenza and the Corleone family? I find that, um, you know, just really fascinating to think about that that's potentially how the story could have gone. Oh, I totally agree because what you, I mean, what you end up with is this manufactured story that, uh, that we have, that we have to take time and emotional attention, uh, to, to like build our connection to with Pentangeli, uh, and, and as a surrogate to this dramatic element that we could have had, uh, carry over from the first film. I, it and it seems like such a sad, sad shame that they weren't able to work this out, um, you know, in any any greater sort of substantive way. Um, I I wasn't as crazy about the Pentangeli part this time, uh, and I think it's directly the result of of knowing the backstory. Huh. Interesting. I yeah. I I can see that. I mean, I don't think it bugs me too much, but um, but I do find it really interesting to think about. Just as an aside, we talked last week about how Vito seemed to know things before we knew them, right? That he read subtext much better than we did. Oh, yes. Do you remember that? You were there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was there. So is that a genetic thing? Because apparently, (laughs) 
<laughs> Michael does the same thing in this movie. How does he know all the stuff that he always seems to know? Like, does he get a daily briefing that we're not in charge of, that we don't get to sit in on? Yeah, these guys really are tapped into, uh, you know, everybody's poker face. You know, they clearly... <laughs> Man. They're clearly able to read everybody much better than we are because, I mean, Michael's always uh, doing things and I'm like, okay, so I, I think he thinks that that person is against him or and he's playing him or is that person really his partner? I don't know, but he seems to know and I guess that's... Oh, the Pentangeli, uh, Hyman Roth, um, uh, Rosetto brothers, Rosetti brothers, whoever the brothers are, uh, right. the whole like uh, uh, onion risottos the whole onion of duplicity right the the layer upon layer of duplicity that uh, that michael uh you know has to peel apart and really does not let us in as members of the audience uh what he's doing until it's all done and even then it feels like i'm i'm not entirely sure if i'm to believe michael was on top of this i mean there's one particular view of this movie that you you could walk away thinking wow this second story in terms of the empire strikes back of trilogies this is pretty dark like it's pretty clumsy he's losing control of the family like nobody wants to hang out in tahoe with him anymore uh and uh, everybody's kind of lazing around uh, uh uh and or killing each other and they're going to congress and and, and there's a hearing and it's just awful. Like everything's really bad. Like it seems like Michael is deeply out of his league in taking over the family business. Not to mention that, but, you know, the whole idea that Vito had to put all this together was to take care of his family. And here you just watch Michael just totally destroying his family. And it's yeah. just awful. Not just his marriage, but I mean, his his relationship with his brother and just everything. And even Tom, he almost kills that right. relationship i mean he's, he's just he really is terrible and he's just going down such a dark road and it's really interesting because you look at um everything that Vito's doing and and you know it just like that last moment you have with Vito and he's just you know waving with michael and it's just like michael michael uh you know say goodbye say goodbye and it's just it's so sweet and tender this whole moment of this father and son and then at the end of uh you know michael's story you just have this this kind of this cold person who kicks his wife out and, uh, you know, kills his brother. And it's just everything about him is just is so off-putting. And uh, he's just, there's nothing there that is, it's, it really seems like nothing's there for the family. And that's something in the script that I really enjoy in that very last scene, that birthday flashback that you have back to 1941 where he's kind of come back from, or he, he tells the family he's going to, uh, go join the military, and and Sonny is totally totally mad at him for doing that and everything. But you know he's got that line. He's like, I have my own plans for my future, and you know I kind of think that that really ends up saying everything about him and his place. It's like he's not uh, he's trying to do stuff for the family, or at least he says he is. But it, in a way, he really is Walter White here, or you could say Walter White is him. He's really doing it because it's his story and he wants to do what he wants to do and i think that is really what the essence of this particular film is he's enjoying it and even though it it seems like he's trying to do it for the family 
he's really doing it because this is how he wants to do things. You know, that's really interesting. And it says a lot about the parallel storylines, too, because we have the the young Vito storyline is all about building up, right? It's about taking action to build strength in a family, in a brand new family, because he's starting literally from nothing. I mean, he is alone on a boat. And he's coming over here, his entire family is gone, and he's coming over here to start from scratch and build up in that storyline. And the parallel storyline is is Michael ripping things apart because he can't get out of his own way. Yeah, absolutely. Briefly on Coppola's direction here, I mean, we, we dove pretty deep on Coppola last time, but did you get, do you feel like you got anything out of watching this film uh, as uh, in, in close proximity to the first film uh, regarding Coppola as a director? I, I think that he just, again, really has a, a, a very steady hand and knows how to tell the stories that he's doing. Um, he admits that uh, I think, you know, he started playing around with the conversation and stationary cameras and the way that he would position things and, um, and he, that he felt that there was definitely some influence from that film with this film. And I definitely think you can see some of that, how there's a moment early on when um, when Michael, um, I, I can't remember which character comes into the room, but uh, Michael dismisses Tom, his conciliary, um, and Tom leaves. And instead of saying with Michael to hear the conversation, you follow the camera follows Tom leave, and and you see him continue out the window while the audio you're still in the room listening to Michael have this conversation. Um, some really interesting kind of directing choices like that that I feel like. You know, he started playing around with um, when he was doing the conversation and, and as he kind of continues his uh, directing moving forward. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I think that I, I think that it's just a really uh, it's an interesting way to kind of explore uh, some some more creative things, some more avant-garde types of filmmaking while on a really big scope. And so I, I have found it really fascinating. The, uh, the Particularly that audio trick uh, is employed again with, uh, in the, um, uh, the it, it's like the, the sex club, right? In Havana. Yeah. Uh, where we have Fredo actually slip up. And that is not only one of the one of the really interesting uses of this trick, but it's also two of the great performances between Cazal and, and Pacino as, as Pacino is standing behind him and there, you know, it is framed perfectly. It, the, the cuts work so well. The audio is one consistent track. Uh, and it, uh, it, it is a, a very strong reveal ultimately of the big, you know, uh, the chaos in Fredo's own head. Uh, so it's really, really well done. It turns out he didn't want to direct this Coppola. He didn't want to do this one. Uh, and yet, ultimately, it ended up being, according to him, uh, the smoothest big picture he's ever done. Yeah, I think what's so funny is that, uh, you know, he he had done the first one. He's just like, what more do I have to tell with this story? I already did it. I mean, there wasn't a, a, a second book. And so, you know, they were just like, no, you got to do it. It was so successful. We need more money is kind of the studio's attitude. Um, so he's just like, no, no, no. And he tried to get them to actually hire Martin Scorsese. And they're like, Martin Scorsese will never direct this picture. You know, all the same stuff that they were saying about Marlon Brando being the first being in the first film and all that craziness. And so I think finally he ended up succumbing and he saw some options to do the story. I mean, kind of how we've already talked about the direction of the two different parallel stories. Um and, uh, you know, obviously some some more money to direct it, uh, to make it bigger and everything. Um, and then weirdly, part of his requirement to direct it was he wanted to name it The Godfather Part Two, 
because he he didn't want people to to think it was you know something else. He wanted to make it feel like it really was just a continuation of that first story. Maybe part of that was because the whole Vito uh, Corleone part of the the uh, of the film is really still based on that first book, and it's only the the uh, Michael Corleone part that's new. Um, but anyway, what's so interesting about that is they agreed, and he ended up making it obviously. But by doing so, this is really kind of the inadvertent origin of sequel numbering. They didn't have any sequel numbering before this. So this (laughs) was it. Everything went to hell after that. (laughs) Jeez. Oh, yes. Sharknado 3D. Exactly. But see, the only sequel I can think of right now is The Rescuers Down Under. Why am I completely... (laughs) First shot, last shot, Andy. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so our first shot, we start with a close-up of Michael's face as uh, people kiss his hand and uh, before we cut to uh, the chair and see the title screen. And the last shot, Michael, predictably, is all alone in an autumnal <laughs> setting. Uh, we, we are guessing he's at his Lake Tahoe retreat. He's sitting outside. We push slowly, slowly into his face. He is aged now, and, uh, and, uh, and we fade. How does it? How does this work? Does this work as well as the first uh, film? I, I think it does. I think it gives you a good sense of kind of where we left off with the last one. You know, we have Michael succeeding as the new heir to the throne, so to speak, and it ends with now this man has basically effectively pushed everybody out of his life, and he's left alone. In I assuming that uh, they went into this never intending to make another one. You can kind of assume that this last bit is years later and it's just, you know, he is kind of left alone and uh, his life is empty and hollow. And uh, I, I like it. I, I, I mean, it's it's nothing too complex, but I still like it. Yeah, it's nothing too complex in that it doesn't actually tell us anything thematic about the film uh, as much as the first one did. Um, you know, the, the first really long shot it tells us everything we need to know about the story. And in this one, we just get sort of his position of power very briefly. And he's old, like the, the, the years have taken a toll on him. So, uh, but, you know, I don't think it's as strong as the first one. But uh, Pacino, of course, these micro expressions that he's able to really cultivate on his face, I think are, are very strong. And we see it particularly in that last shot. Yeah, which I mean, it's it's a nice long shot, not uh, not three minutes or anything, but it's right. it's a beautiful long shot, and I think it gives us a lot. I mean, you know, he's killed his brother, he's he's pushed his wife and, and kids out of his life, well, wife out of his life, and I think that there's something just this dark place that he's left in, and I, I just feel like you know this is this man who's just left you know thinking about all the wrongs that he's done. Let's talk about some of these performances. Oh, yes. Yeah, casting by Jane Feinberg, Michael Fenton, and Vic Ramos. Uh, And they brought back Mr. Pacino, again, as Michael Corleone. You know what's funny is a lot of people say that this performance is uh, Pacino's greatest in film history. I disagree. I'm torn because... I often find Pacino really big and kind of over the top, like uh, Scent of a Woman, you know, where it's just, you know, his his bigness is great, but that's that that's how Pacino is. So I like how how controlled he is here. And I think there are a lot of really powerful moments where you can just read so much of what's going on in him and how he's thinking and everything. His confrontation with uh, uh, with with um, Fredo down at the uh, at the New Year's party in Cuba, 
boy, his his confrontation with uh, with Kay when she admits that she had an abortion. I mean, that just that scene rips me up. I'd say it's it's one of his greatest. It might not be his greatest. I but I, I can't think of what his greatest is. You know, big other boy than, Caprice, uh, Dick Tracy. Are you kidding? I was going to say the devil's own, but you know, to each his own, I guess. <laughs> you know, I I just I, I feel like this is, I, and I think part of the performance suffers from the the sort of convolution of the part, and and I I don't I don't see it quite as as strong as some of his other films, even some of his less um, you know incendiary parts. Um, I even I I don't I'm not saying this is one of his best parts, but in just in terms of his range, Insomnia, right? This part uh, he played uh, uh, Will Dormer in Insomnia, and it was it was a much different kind of part. And I think this film capitalized on exactly what he was in Godfather One, and it wasn't anything particularly new. Um, I don't think I could put this up against Vic Hanna uh, and and have it beat Vic Hanna and in Heat, uh, which was I I thought an exceptional performance. Yeah, I I agree. I I would put this above Vicana. You would? I would, yeah. It's really different, but in terms of strength and breadth of performance, um I I find that this film is exactly what I got in the other film. It's just a little bit older and a little bit longer. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that he's there's a lot of more interesting things going on with him. But I mean, you know, I I can see what you're saying though. And again, I don't know if I'd call it his greatest, but I I do like his performance here. Uh, or I shouldn't say I like it, but I, I feel that it, from from my eyes, uh, seems stronger than Vic. All right. What about Robert Duvall? Is back as Tom Hagen briefly. I feel so bad for Tom Hagen. I don't know why that is, but I mean, you know, he just he always feels like he's getting kind of pushed out by Michael, and I think that's really interesting. And uh, you know, it, it's never fully. Uh, there's not ever full closure. Although you do, you do feel that Tom's at least going to stay in his life because he does say, you know, what do I need to do? And he helps him out at the end there. Um, again, going back to that subtext uh, and the scene that that uh, Duvall has um, talking with um, Pentangeli in the uh, FBI uh, prison. Uh, definitely one of my favorite scenes of the film. I, I love the conversation they have about Roman soldiers and just all of that. I think it's such an interesting way to play that and uh you know i mean duvall's duvall he's always great yeah he's great i was disappointed that we didn't get more of him it was a much more subdued sort of role a a much smaller role in terms of just screen time and uh, i think we got to see a lot more of duvall doing great stuff in the first movie and and so i was just disappointed only in relative size of of the performance that we were able to get from duvall on screen well, and it makes me wonder if that might be why Duvall did not uh, sign on to come back for Godfather Part 3. I know uh, Coppola wanted him back, but, I, you know, I, I think that he just didn't feel the part was there. And so uh, at least that's kind of the impression I have, yeah. which we'll talk more about that next week. Diane Keaton, we said last week that Diane Keaton had more stuff going on in Godfather 2, and then we got to see it. Oy. She's yeah, she's strong. She is great. She's what? What was she? She's like twenty six or something when she did this scene. I, I I don't know, but man, she doesn't have much time, right? I mean, she's she's on screen fairly briefly, and that's largely because Corley, Michael has pushed her uh, Kay out of out of his life as a result of all this stuff. And then we get this the scene, right? The the abortion scene that you've you've already uh, uh, mentioned, and you get to see just, you know, why Diane Keaton is Diane Keaton. Yeah, it's uh, it's so powerful. And watching her face when she's talking with uh, with Michael, and that, um, that look that she gets on her face when he is like, you know, I know 
that you blame me for the miscarriage and all of that. And just just the 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 anger and everything that you see in her face. And then when she finally uh, admits, no, it wasn't a miscarriage, it was an abortion and just <laughs> like everything comes out. And it's like, wow, that is that is an incredible scene. And uh, it, it just shows, I mean, exactly why Diane Keaton was so great. But it, man, it just, it's a scene that just that just kills me, though. Ugh. It, and it, of course, it provides another opportunity for a Corleone male to knock over a chair, <laughs> which happens. I don't know if you counted. This would be a great di- drinking game. Happens a lot. <laughs> All right. You yeah, really want to do Sonny shooters. Sonny, Sonny, you follow Sonny. He knocks over chairs all the time. <laughs> uh, Robert De Niro is new to this film from uh, from the last as young Vito Corleone. Yeah, they uh, they couldn't get Marlon. Uh, I know Coppola tried to get Marlon back to to play Vito, but uh, you know there's there's number of stories. He you know something with the money issues that he had with Paramount the first time. Um, there's a story that uh, the Paramount execs were still upset with him that uh, about the whole uh, Academy Award issue when he kind of had uh, such a little feather except in his behalf. Um, all of that it, it just you know it never worked, and so. Um, so he ended up, uh, Coppola ended up casting De Niro, who's, uh, just, I mean, he's great in the role. He really works well. And I, uh, I just, I, you know, I, I think he works really well as Vito playing kind of that Marlon Brando character. And I, I mean, I love it. And I think he's, he's, uh, uh, a great addition to this franchise. I totally, totally agree. And I've, I'm already on the record. This was the stronger part of the film for me. Uh, and, and it's largely because we get to see the sort of black hand side of the, of the street gangs of, of New York, you know, as he's, he's trying to build his business and, and the things he is, he decides in real time to do, uh, to, to support his community. It's, he's a community organizer, right? I mean, (laughs) Like, it, it, you know, 50 years later, and he could be a, a hipster, you know, out getting Bernie voters to to get to the polls, <laughs> right? I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, anyway, I he's, really, uh, I thought he was great. He's great. And one of my favorite scenes in the film is when he he takes on Finucci and kind of, uh, you know, like a cat, stalks him and then kills him with the, under that flickering light with a towel around the gun. Such a brilliantly conceived scene. I did not find this, but did you figure? Did you ever read anything about whether or not the the flaming towel was intentional? Uh, my understanding is it was. Coppola again going back to kind of how he was always trying to do deaths in interesting ways. He had read about this or heard about it somewhere, and he really thought that was a, a great visual, and he actually wanted that to happen, and so. Um, so they they planned that. That is a fantastic shot. It's uh, you know after um, after young Vito shoots uh, Fanucci twice, and Fanucci's death. I don't know if you noticed this. He pulled the same tongue thing in this film that we got when uh, when the police chief was shot in the neck last time. Did you notice that when he dies? That was great. It was great. There are some great death scenes in this film. And I, and I love how quickly he falls. Like he struggles yeah. for so long and then all of a sudden he just like drops. Boom. <laughs> uh, okay, John Cazell is another one. We said, uh, you know, Fredo uh, has a lot more going on in this film. He sure does. I think that uh, John Cazell is a really interesting actor. And um, I mean, gosh, you know, it's it's such a shame that he was one of those people that just was not around for very long. You know, I mean, he appeared in, I, I think, seven films 
And uh, this is, I think, just such a, well, six films really. And then, you know, he, archive footage of him in Godfather Part 3. I think that this storyline of of uh, bumping up the importance of Fredo in the film and kind of that relationship with Michael, I don't know. I, I find it really powerful and how Fredo is just kind of dumb and he gets himself into this situation with where he nearly gets his brother killed and it leads to this uh, this kind of uh, family war. Uh, brilliant. I also love how Coppola so often shows us Fredo lying in positions where he just kind of already looks like he's dead or he's just kind of like this you know, limp body laying there. Um, no, I, I love him. I, I do too. And I think he's so well used, um, you know, in the narrative, right? He is, it's so funny that you bring up, he's, he's shot so often as kind of this rag doll. And yet when he's given a job that absolutely fits who he is, just like in the first film, when they sent him, you know, they sent him to Vegas and his, he came alive when he became the cruise director, you know, like that was who he was supposed to be. Uh, and in this film, when they gave him people to entertain, he was great. He knew what to do. He was very charismatic. Like you get to see him kind of turn on. Uh, I, I think it's a really interesting character in this film. And and Cazal uh, uh, is such a great utility player. It's interesting to hear um, Coppola talk about um, you know Fredo. Apparently, Mario Puzo did not want Fredo to die at all, but uh, he says that Francis was adamant, and uh, so it was Puzo who said, "Okay, you can't kill him until after the mother dies," because. Uh, he said he was afraid that if Michael had Fredo killed before the mother dies, that the audience would never forgive Michael. What do you think about that? It's such a strange thing. I, I don't know if that's, you know, coming from his Italian-American mindset or what. But, you know, for me, it's just like, I, I don't know if it changes <laughs> changes my thoughts of Michael uh, on either side, you know, right? whether he kills Fredo before or after mom was dead. <laughs> I thought that was such an interesting perspective that I had never thought of. Uh, Michael has done things that are absolutely unforgivable already. But to, apparently to kill his brother under the watch of his mother is, that's where the line is. I thought that was a really interesting perspective on family. Last little interesting bit about uh, Kazal is, uh, I guess I guess of his projects, he was actually only in five full-length films, The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. And um, plus his, like I said, the archive footage of him in Godfather Part Three. All six of the films that he was in, they were all nominated for Best Picture. And I miss Stan, too. This made me want to go watch The Deer Hunter again. <laughs> Talia Shire is back as uh, Connie Corleone, the sister. Yeah, the uh, the whole ab- idea of the abortion uh, was her idea, which Coppola originally thought was uh, too kind of uh, too much, but then he kind of latched onto it and went with it. And uh, you know, I think he made the right choice. Um, again, a little nepotism helps out, I guess. Um, you know, it was funny though; she was nominated for best supporting actress for this, and you know, I mean, she's fine in the film, but I just like there's so little of her. I was just like, really, that was. I totally agree with that. I mean, her her scene, uh, her big scene at the end as she's begging Michael to forgive Fredo, uh, it's a great scene and, and it's great. But that's really her highlight performance. And it's in the last 15 minutes of the film. Well, yeah, but, you know, I, I guess I would say you compare that with her at the open when she's uh, when she's with um, uh, Merle. 
And she's just like angry and bitter and kind of a raging drunk and clearly like that angry family member who's just going to do everything that they can to kind of hurt you. I, you can obviously see the transition. I guess maybe that's why uh, they nominated her. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It, that probably is the bigger scene toward the end. All right. What about uh, the, the man, right? Lee Strasberg is Hyman Roth. Oh, yes. The big acting teacher. I found it so interesting that he ended up getting cast in this. I guess uh, Pacino recommended him because he was his acting coach. And uh, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's fun to kind of see him... Uh, acting you know the guy who came up with the method the father of method acting and here he is uh you know getting himself into his uh, character using the method and you know it's fun to see i i really enjoy seeing him in this film it's a it's a great choice um and you know he does he does a, a good job here i know coppola originally wanted elia kazan to play the role but i don't know i like what strasberg does here I do too. He is, uh, he's, he's one of those characters that, uh, apparently this was one that represented Meyer Lansky, uh, the, these real characters, uh, in the mob that he, you know, when we're introduced to him, he's got his leg, uh, over this wicker chair, <laughs> he's watching football and we get this incredibly subdued conversation about watching the football and, uh, and suddenly all at once, as if both of these characters is in this conversation with Michael and both both of them at once know what to do at the same time. They stand up and go through the mechanics of rearranging the room, turning up the volume so that they can have their chairs closer together and talk to one another. And I I really love that sequence. It is such a, a fantastic demonstration of, again, like you brought up earlier, subtext and what these two gentlemen are doing to have a gentlemanly conversation about something that ultimately ends in bloodshed. So interesting. I I really, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Michael uh, Gatso plays the uh, uh, Frank Pantangeli, the manufactured uh, character as a stand-in for uh, Clemenza we talked about earlier. I have such a great time watching Pantangeli, and I love his voice, and I just yeah. love the I love the character. He just feels, uh, you know, he feels more old school than than Michael. You know, I love the bit at the beginning when he's trying to get the band to play the song, and he's <laughs> working so hard at it, and then they just do Pop Goes the Weasel, and it's just... I don't know. It just, it felt like he's just stuck in the wrong time, you know, like he would have been better off in the time with, with young Vito and, and young Clemenza and young Tessio, you know, but here he is trying to deal with this young punk kid. Who else do you love? We've got a number of characters in here, but who else do you really love? You know, I I think that's about it. Other than, and we already mentioned Bruno Kirby playing uh, Peter Clemenza. And we've of course talked about him and when Harry met Sally. And then of course, just the fact that Danny Aiello, young Danny Aiello and young Harry Dean Stanton (laughs) kind of pop up in the movie. I love it. And I didn't even notice it the first time I watched it. I, until I, I started looking through the cast, I had to actually go back and find them. Uh, Uh, James Conn, uh, does do a cameo, and man, he does all right. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, James Caan apparently agreed to uh, reprise the role of Sonny in that one scene at the end, that birthday flashback sequence, but he demanded to be paid the same amount he received for the entire previous film just for filming that one scene, and he received it. <laughs> oh, to be James Kahn. That's right. Because by then, you know, even two years, James Kahn, he, he realized, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm James Kahn. <laughs> everything changed. Uh, oh, we had a number so of great, uh, a number of great cameos in addition to Sonny Corleone. 
Yeah, it's you know in, in the Senate hearing scene, it's uh, um, Coppola and Fred Roos. They uh, they got some old friends and people from the industry um, that they put in to play some of the senators. Roger Corman pops up in there. Writer producer William Bowers, producer Phil Feldman, and of course uh, the science fiction writer Richard Matheson. And, uh, of course, uh, Melissa's his uh, daughter, and we're going to be having a series of some of her films next year. So it's fun to see all those people pop up. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, getting the thing made. Gordon Willis is back as cinematographer. Don't have really much anything else to add to this. It still looks great. It looks as if it was one film. Yeah, right. I, I think they did a great job of, of tying it all together nicely. Uh, production design uh, also looks great. You really get a feeling this is New York. Uh, it, it is a, a beautiful sort of cascading, never-ending block after block of New York, of a classic New York. It really feels like you're there. Yeah, Dean Tevelaris, uh, I mean, who had done the previous film, you know, I think what, what happened with Coppola at the time when he did the the first film, all these these uh, established people felt he was this young upstart and who is this kid, you know, all that sort of stuff. By now, he had proven himself, and now they're all like, oh, okay, well, we could be partners, and we can work on this together. And so it's funny. Uh, Dean Tavalaris definitely brought a lot of his amazing work to this. I, yeah, like you said, just all that stuff in the old New York, all the uh, you know the street scenes and everything is just so beautiful. And uh, but there's one scene that or one story that I heard that I just thought was so funny. Um, Hyman Roth, when they're when they're down on the rooftop down in Cuba, one day I guess his sweater that he had been in is kind of a white sweater with a kind of black uh, check pattern on it. It disappeared and nobody could find it. So the art department they got a they got a white shirt and a black sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> They went down and actually remade that shirt with a, with a Sharpie just so they could finish uh, shooting the scene. That's awesome. So tedious. Oh, my goodness. So funny. I, you know, speaking of costumes, uh, Theodora Van Runkel uh, was, was in charge of the costumes, and, and the costumes are great. You have to admit, the costumes look great, particularly jumping back and forth uh, between these two periods. But uh, this one bit stuck out. Some of the flashbacks ended up having to be reshot. Uh, because originally the pants and jackets had zippers on them. And I did not actually notice this, but mostly because they had to reshoot them to remove the zippers, which weren't invented until 1913. So the first 13 years of the setting uh, of De Niro, sort of young Vito's, uh, they, they had to excise all of the zippers. I thought that was a riot. What a pain and now to they discover could, that. Now- James Cameron would just digitally remove them all. Yes, exactly. And apparently it was one of the musicians that uh, that pointed that out. And it, it was not clear in the source that I read whether it was one of the musicians that was part of the scoring orchestra or a musician in some other context, like a, an extra, uh, that actually noticed uh, on set uh, that they had to they had to go back and reshoot some things. So that, that was not clear. But whoever it was, you know, kudos, musician. So for, funny. You know, being well-read on the lore of zippers. <laughs> I know the history of the zipper, and that is not right. <laughs> it is not a zipper. I know zipper, Senator. You are no zipper. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about locations. Yeah, the last film certainly had a number of locations, but boy, here we're in New York. We're in Lake Tahoe. We go to L.A., Dominican Republic as Cuba. 
going to Italy and Miami. We're all over the place in this film. Uh, it looks it looks great. Uh, the Dominican Republic, particularly as Cuba, I thought looked really really good. And and they had to do it in such a way that make it uh, you know it was a very dynamic time of revolution in Cuba. And I thought that was uh, it was particularly strong. Kind of the kind of the rise of uh, Fidel Castro, which is yeah. interesting and very timely considering his recent passing. Uh, the ship that brought Vito Corleone to America is the Moshulu, uh, which uh, only matters in that you can go eat there now. How great is that? It's a restaurant, and it's in Philly, and you can go there, and it's a fine dining place. You eat on this boat that's docked in the in the harbor there. Uh, it was also used, uh, it's, it, it was behind uh, one of Rocky's workout scenes uh, in Rocky 1, and it was also in the final scene of blowout, which we've talked about on this show, and did not make mention of the Moshulu. I feel like we should go back and talk about it. I can't even picture where it was, so I'm <laughs> going to have to go watch it again so I, just so I can see this boat. That's right. There it <sighs> is. So funny. You can go to Moshulu. I think it's uh, just uh, Moshulu.com and make your reservations. There you Fantastic. go. Or open table. Uh, editing, Barry Malkin, Richard Marks, and Peter Zinner. It's interesting. I, I'm curious, though. We couldn't find anything about how they split up the editorial duties of this film. I wonder how they did it, uh, knowing the way Coppola works with and tortures his editors. Yeah, I, you know, and, and it's interesting that there are three now um, dealing with just these two stories. So I do wonder exactly how he had it. Like, did one do one storyline, the other did the other, and then the third one kind of brought it all together? I don't really know, but I do find it kind of interesting that uh, that you know he had the three. Um, I did find it interesting that um, it was very difficult to find the the right pace uh, as to how they cut between the two storylines. And I think it was some of the early cuts. They actually um, audiences were really struggling because they were actually cutting between the two storylines far too frequently, and so they ended up bringing it back quite a bit. And uh, now I, th- I feel like the pacing actually works pretty nicely between the two storylines. Um, and then not to mention, I, I've already said that they did this chronological cut. Back in 77, Coppola actually already did a TV version of these two films kind of squunched together chronologically uh, with some cuts for TV and uh, some deleted scenes and all that. So, I mean, there's been a lot of editing with all of these. But, um, you know, I, I think that these three editors certainly deserve credit for coming up with the cut that they did. Walter Murch was back for sound. Wait, he wasn't on the first one for sound, was he? He was on the first one, um, not in sound, but in some capacity, like some consultant or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, but this is definitely like early in the career of Walter Murch as he's right. kind of starting to fine tune exactly what it is he's going to end up doing. Um, but certainly, I mean, he's kind of a, a Coppola regular and uh, is certainly going to see him kind of continue his career um, with Coppola and his projects. And uh, Nino Rota and Carmine Coppola for music. Um, you know, it's very much the same theme. It's it, it's it's the same theme, but I noticed that they hardly use the theme that he got busted for last. Right, time. right, right. You know, he uses some of the other themes, and then he adds some new themes. And I actually really liked all the music that he brought to the table here, or the two of them really brought to the table here. Um, although, you know, it is interesting. Every now and then, a movie does this. Um, uh, James Bond has done it, and here you have it, where the actual theme song is played on a church organ in the film. So it just, it begs the question is like, do, do all the characters know this tune? You know, <laughs> it's like, 
I don't understand in films when you have a theme like that and all of a sudden you get this weird kind of meta entrance to this this film where all of a sudden that's that you know film score in our world is introduced into their world you know i don't think you can get away with that without without telegraphing that you're breaking the fourth wall because that's that is a sign that that our universes are the same even though we know that they're not and unless you're in a musical unless you're you know aladdin uh, you know, you, you can't get away with that um, and, and make it sound normal. It really strikes me sideways. You know, it'd be like if, uh, you know, Jack started singing the, the theme song from Titanic while he's holding Rose and their arms are out on the bow. You know, it just, it just doesn't work. You know, uh, it, it struck me sideways, too. How'd it do with the uh, with the uh, Oscar nominations? There w- was there any controversy as juicy as the last time? Nothing as juicy, um, although you did have some people who did not show up. So uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see how all of this shakes out. Um, this film was the first sequel to win Best Picture, um, so uh, kudos to it for that. Um, it did get nominated for a number of things, including Best Picture. Um, and it did win against the conversation. So Coppola was uh, nominated against himself there. Um, he got his Oscar this time, even though Bob Fosse, who had beat him last time, um, was also nominated for Lenny. But uh, Coppola ended up coming out on top. Uh, supporting actor Robert De Niro won. Um, he was not present. And uh, to this day, interestingly, both he and Brando are the only two actors to receive an Oscar for playing the same character. Um, I, you and I, I know we're talking about this and we're trying to like, well, what other, what other situation could this have happened in? And, yeah. and we haven't quite come up, uh, come upon any great performance where, uh, you know, a potential opposite could have also been nominated. But, but, but you know um, who will, you know who will, I'm going to go ahead and call my shot right now, just like Babe Ruth. I'm going to okay. call my shot. I'll, I'll bet the first person to tell us the answer to this question is going to be Nick Langdon. Nick, it's on you. <laughs> there you go. We'll be looking for you on Facebook. That's right. That's right. Um, and then it also won for adapted screenplay, art direction, and original dramatic score. Um, interesting little note as far as the score goes. Um, Carmine, he was walking back to his seat and he dropped his Oscar <laughs> and and broke it. And they had to give him... Yeah, he broke his Oscar. And they had to give him like a little substitute one to carry around the rest of the time until they could get him a replacement apparently. Oh, no. That's oh, the yeah. worst. I don't That's know. Would so you rather bad. drop your Oscar on the way back or would you rather like trip and fall on it, national well, TV, global right, TV? Well, you know, if you're Jennifer Lawrence, you'd rather just trip and fall because yeah, she always does that gracefully. Let's just say you'd rather be Jennifer Lawrence. Who doesn't want to be Jennifer Lawrence. Lawrence? I mean, come on. That's right. All right. Keep going. Um, it, it, it was nominated for some other awards that it lost. Um, Best Actor, Al Pacino, lost uh, to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto, again, feeling no love from the Academy. Um, Supporting actor Michael V. Gasso and Lee Strasberg were also nominated, but of course, De Niro took that one. Uh, Talia Shire was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to Ingrid Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express. And uh, Theodore Van Runkel was nominated for Costume Design, but she lost to Theone V. Aldridge for The Great Gatsby. And yet, once again, no nomination for cinematography. It makes you wonder if Gordon Willis's darkness was just not something people at the time could appreciate it. And it wasn't until much later that people really kind of accepted it for what it was and really started loving it. I think that is a, uh, that's a great point. And I've been thinking about it all week. Just what a clever cinematographer 
uh, and, and he is, and it is really sad uh, that he didn't get it for this. Uh, sequels, uh, obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, part three, uh, but this this also made it into the uh, the the small gamey screen. Yeah, did you ever play? <laughs> You know, I didn't, but I know that they made a Godfather video game, and uh, then they subsequently made a Godfather 2 video game. And apparently they kind of follow the story, but like you're a character, not Michael, you're just some other character in it. I don't I don't know. It sounds so <laughs> odd to me. Have you tried them? No. Uh, no, I haven't. But uh, I did run across a, um, a review that said it was pretty terrible. So I, you know, I don't know the the screenshots that I I found. You know, they're they're color at least, <laughs> and uh, they but they weren't able to capture the that real Gordon Willis. It's sort of a from what I gather, it's kind of a side scroller, and so you know you're walking through old New York, and I, but I I'm not sure what you shoot at. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Is what it is. All right, how about the numbers, Andy? How did it do? Well, you know, uh, like we already mentioned, with the success of the first installment in the saga, um, they really amped things up here. The first one was shot in 62 days. This one, they had 104 days. The budget nearly doubled to $13 million, which is about $63.5 million in today's dollars, uh, which, uh, of course, um, if you think about that, you're like, really? $63.5 million? That's... Uh, you know, a modest film these days, not some 200 minute epic, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, this movie premiered December 12th, 1974, then opened wide on the 20th opposite James Bond's The Man with the Golden Gun. And then of course, a movie we're going to be talking about in just a few weeks, Black Christmas. Um, The Godfather Part (laughs) 2. I don't even know what to say to you about that. (laughs) Oh, The Godfather Part 2, of course, shot right to the top, hitting number one at the box office, but it only stayed there for three weeks, getting knocked off by The Towering Inferno, of all things. The movie didn't do nearly as well as its predecessor, only making $57.3 million at the box office domestically, or $279.6 million in today's dollars. Poor them. Um, I couldn't find any international <laughs> figures, so I'll just have to go with that, which lands it at, at an adjusted profit per finish minute of just over a million dollars. Like I said, it's not as high as the first film, but for a film that's 200 minutes long, a mil per minute is pretty snazzy. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say first. I have two things I need to comment on. The first one is in our notes, Andy, have you really started abbreviating adjusted profit per finish minute? Do you know how much, how many letters that is? <laughs> I think this is the first time I've seen you. Have you been doing this all along? No. I've the been the APPFM? It. I've just been doing it in the last, I don't know, last uh, month or so. <laughs> Andy, that's fantastic. The APPFM, <laughs> is this like an industry uh, term that I don't know about? It's a, it's an industry term in my head, yes. Well, we're going to make it so. This is going to be the question yes, I ask every speakeasy guest <laughs> talking about their <laughs> APPFM on their films. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is that, uh, yes, I have found the download for the uh, Godfather original 1991 video game uh, for the Commodore Amiga or the Atari ST. Oh wow! Uh, so if you're interested, yes, I found them. It, it's uh, I have six disc images uh, for each version, and uh, so you can you can play that too. I'll put that <laughs> put that in the show notes. So funny! That is just so funny. Yeah, if you happen to have an Amiga emulator, 
That's what you're going to want to use. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's do it, Andy. I think it's time to rank it. Let's do it. All right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you know the drill. Search for The Godfather Part 2 and add it to your flick chart. Uh, and, and let's just see where it hits. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I really, it's a, we're rolling the dice against each other here. I don't know if we're going to be in violent agreement. Might be a lot of fighting. We'll see. The Godfather Part 2 or The Road Warrior. Part 2 versus Part 2. It's definitely The Godfather Part 2 for me. Yeah, I think it's the I think it's I think it's the Godfather Part 2 for me. Good. I'm glad we didn't have to start there. Starting there. Yes. I mean, we're, we're okay so far. The Godfather Part 2 or The Dish. I am definitely the Godfather the Part Godfather 2. The Godfather Part 2. Yeah. The Godfather Part 2. This is where it gets tough. Aliens, Pete. Aliens. Aliens, please. I am going to say aliens also. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I know. Kel Didn't Surprise. see that coming, No. The Godfather Part 2, or the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am, I'm, I'm thinking good, bad, the ugly. Are you? Yeah. I am going to say that too. <laughs> Why do you tease me so? The Godfather Part 2 or My Neighbor Totoro. I'm going with The Godfather Part 2. Over Totoro? Yep. I mean, I how do you I, this is this is the hate crime, right? I mean, how do how are you supposed to rank The Godfather Part 2 and Miyazaki? Right, I know. Uh The Godfather Part 2 or The Fly. The Fly. Believe it or not, I also say The Fly. Weirdly, those two are exactly next to each other on my flick chart. So they're like super close, neck and neck. Oh. Uh, the Godfather Part Two, or the Philadelphia Story? Oh, I'm the Godfather Part Two. Okay, we'll give that to you. There we have it, folks. <laughs> Sandwiched between the Fly and the Philadelphia Story, uh, Godfather is now 57 on our flick chart. Not quite number one, um, but you know, I think it did uh, it did well enough for itself. That that feels about right to me, honestly. Um, you know, I I was expecting it to be in the easily in the top. 75 like i i knew it wasn't going to fall below 100 but i didn't i I didn't think it was going to be in our top 20 for example i wouldn't have been surprised if it was because i do really really like the film um but again we've talked about a lot of great films so yeah i i guess i guess to a certain extent it does end up feeling like it's kind of in a in a pretty good spot where where is it on your personal flick chart number 52 oh 52 out of out of, okay. out of 3500 something or other it is, let's see, it, it out of, I, I only have 982 movies on my flick chart, 3,600 rankings um, right now, and this is at 127, if that gives you a sense. So it feels about like it, we're, we're about in the same range. Okay, yeah. yeah. At least for the, the film board. So I, I feel like I, I, I won, is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I see how is it your, is. What is your letterbox on this one? Still a five star, four and a half, four with the Andy half star of love. This is totally a five star film for me. All right. All right. Totally. Gonna, a I, it is not a five star for me. It's a four star film for me. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, that great. really but surprises one, 127. me. 127. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay. It really surprises, it really surprises you? Yeah, it's I you know this film I mean while not as good as the first Godfather film is such a strong film. I think there's so much interesting stuff going on here. It has some scenes that are just iconic, powerful, incredible scenes. Uh, I I have a hard time seeing it. Is. it no, I I don't disagree five. with you. I no, I I don't disagree with you. It does. It has a lot 
of really powerful scenes. It is a very long movie, and the stuff that takes place in the contemporary sort of uh, in the future past uh, is uh, more convoluted than uh, the stuff that I in the that I really loved about the first movie. That was also iconic and fantastic, uh, and so I, I feel like it is a step down from that first movie and must be ranked as such. <laughs> Oh, Dues must be paid, Andy. <laughs> the line must be drawn here and no further. Okay, have your four star. Wayayada. And obviously, we already mentioned we're doing the Godfather Part Three next week. We are. Uh, this is the last in our Godfather series next week. Uh, you, anything you want to say about that? I am. I'm always looking forward to to finishing the series and to seeing how it ends. Um, largely because I never remember Godfather Three very well, <laughs> so so What's it's funny? nice to kind of refresh it. Yeah, this is the one that I quote more than any other. Right, every time they try, I try to get out, they pull me back. Pull in. me back. In. Yes, <laughs> that's right. the that's the most quotable. I don't. And and the sunglasses or the glasses, the the assassination uh-huh. with the glasses. I remember those two things. And uh, I have this vague memory of, um, you know, some of the actors. So I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like I don't, I feel like it gets such a bad rap and I, I cannot defend why. I think I've only seen it like twice. I think it gets a really bad rap unnecessarily, uh, largely because of uh, Sophia's performance, which, you know, I mean, we'll talk about next week, but it's like to, to, you know, diminish the whole film because of that performance, I always feel just is awfully belittling. Yeah. Um, you know. So anyway, I'm looking forward to talking about it more next week. Me too. Until then, Andy, I clearly have got to go to bed. All right, man. Well, I'm off to Cuba. Viva la revolución! Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick it off. Can I kick it off? You do it. This one comes from my uh, my dear close personal friend Sarah. Uh, she says I, that I, she starts off with what is I think a standard trope on Amazon. She says I'm glad that the streaming kept getting interrupted so that Amazon refunded me for the rental because it was absolutely not worth my money. All of the heart of the first Godfather was just gone. Though I will admit that some of my distaste for part two comes from the lack of Marlon Brando, noted. Robert De Niro's performance as Vito was less investing than what I'd hoped, and Coppola's anger at the interpretation of the first Godfather that Michael was a sort of hero shaped the film completely as he made everything about the character unlikable. Though I'm sure that was the point. I don't see the point of having a protagonist that the audience doesn't like, honestly. I felt the only compelling aspect of the film was the twist that Kay had an abortion and not a miscarriage. It was a brave choice for both the character and the director. Overall, I don't understand why so many people enjoy part two as much or even more than the first because I was unable to connect with any of the characters in this one. And I think that's actually an interesting point, don't you? That, And, and I didn't uh, come up uh, against any of evidence that Coppola was angry at the interpretation of the first Godfather being too heroic. Um, but maybe I just missed it. I never heard anything about that. So it's it's an interesting uh, thing to bring up. I, I don't know if I'm going to hold much salt to it, but 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I don't know. It's just I, I think that it was a, just a way to kind of continue exploring this character. Yeah. Interesting. What's yours? Well, I've got a one star by Tuco who says dark, dark, darker. Movie is a joke. This two-disc set is worth crap. Scenes are so dark. What a joke. How a movie studio ever let this pass with the really poor, and I mean really poor quality, awful would be the correct word. Save your money on this one. Wow, what a piece of crap. Trust me on the quality. Junk! Then about five exclamation points. If I could have given this a zero, I would have. (laughs) So... If you missed that, apparently it's crap. (laughs) (laughs) Dark crap, Pete. Dark crap. Uh, Oh, dear. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.